I want the reader to experience the sort of little bits of serendipitous joy that language can produce. You know, if you can do that, why wouldn't you? Hello, and welcome to Interabang, a writing podcast. My name is Liam Monahan, and I'm happy to have as my guest on today's show, Gregory Mackey. Dr. Mackey is an associate professor in UBC's Department of English Language and Literatures, where his research and teaching focus on late 19th century literature, the history of the book, and queer literary history. He also serves as Norman Kohlbeck curator for UBC Library's Rare Books and Special Collections. His first monograph is Beautiful Untrue Things, Forging Oscar Wilde's Extraordinary Afterlife, published by University of Toronto Press in 2019. I think I have to start today with a slight disclaimer, which is to admit that I'm basically predisposed to love this book since I wrote my own master's thesis on Oscar Wilde back in 2015. And it strikes me with what knowledge I still retain from that experience that this book is remarkable in that it makes some truly novel discoveries in what otherwise might be characterized as pretty well-trodden territory. This isn't another book about Wilde's life or work. It's more specifically a book about Wilde's afterlives, which is to say, all the ways in which his legend continued to circulate after his infamous trials and death by way of literary forgeries and impersonations. Dr. Mackey hasn't only introduced a new theoretical or interpretive lens, though he's done that too, insofar as he's wedded performance studies to the study of material book histories, but he's also made significant archival discoveries. Thus, his book is a study of Wilde's, quote, posthumous 20th century devotees, ardent bibliophiles, as well as multiple forgers, whose fantasies of intimacy with the dead author underwrote the production of a remarkable sequence of wild fakes, or indeed fake wilds, that began to appear both in print and manuscript with increasing frequency in the 1920s. In effect, Dr. Mackey writes, they proved to be the early modernist versions of a phenomenon that we would today call the cult of fandom. Greg Mackey, welcome to the podcast. So I wonder if you could just start us off by, I gave a kind of a brief description there, but maybe elaborating a bit more about the project and then, you know, really kind of briefly just giving us a survey of some of the characters that populate the book. It is filled with some pretty extraordinary characters. I've worked on it for more than a decade. So it's the product of a long period of work in a variety of different archives. The main one being the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library in Los Angeles. And it's it's fun that that stuff is there because of course, Wilde is, is known in some quarters for being the inventor of the modern concept of celebrity. He was the first person who was famous for being famous. And it stands to rights that the major collection of his materials is in Los Angeles, of all places. Uh, And I got to spend some time there and in London, uh, where there are other repositories of material. But what I've done with the book is to trace through these archives a series of case studies of different moments or different types of faking of Oscar Wilde after Mm. he died. When he died in 1900, so Wilde was born in 1854 in Dublin. Mm. Um, He died in 
poverty in a shabby hotel in Paris, saying apparently either me or the wallpaper, one of us has to go, <laughs> in total disgrace. Uh, his literary career had been destroyed by the scandal of his trials for quote-unquote gross indecency. And so he became the public face of homosexuality at the time. And the scandal was so great that and, and people repudiated him and his work, except for a few. And he had a, a, a strong band of people who kept the flame alive, including the Canadian Robert Ross, who became his literary executor and his first editor after he mm. died. They tried to keep him in print. His works fell out of print. Uh, nobody wanted to touch Wilde. He was radioactive. But that last situation didn't last forever. And yeah. after about 20 years had passed, rich collectors, particularly in the United States, started to buy Wilde manuscripts and inscribed books and stuff. And a bunch of opportunists started to realize, hey, there might be, you know, some action here. And so the book looks at a bunch of different circumstances, one being the fans of Wilde. Well, they're all really fans of Wilde, but I guess those who were interested in preserving his reputation by writing and publishing about him. And then they also were interested in trying to stop the activities of other groups or sets of individuals who were trying to exploit his posthumous after-death notoriety by producing things that Wilde himself had never imagined and under his own name. The, one of the more interesting characters, perhaps, is an Irish-born woman called, well, she had many names, but best known <laughs> as Mrs. Chan Toon. Yeah. <laughs> and she married a Burmese barrister when interracial marriage was on almost unheard of in yeah. the 1990s London, went with him to Burma, came back, was obsessed with Oscar Wilde. And after a very varied career of her own, she reemerged in London with a parrot on her shoulder in a giant black opera cloak with a <laughs> phony Wilde play and managed to sell it to different publishers. And it was actually published as Wilde. It occasioned a court case whereby Wilde's bibliographer, the sort of amateur scholar and book dealer who had compiled the master list of everything he'd written, uh, was sued by Mrs. Chantoon's publisher for libel. Mm. Um, she later offered her services to the Soviet government mm. and then tried to inveigle Bernard Shaw into another swindle in the early 1930s. At this point, wow. I lose track of her. Disappears from the archive. There's another strand of spiritualist mediums. So talking to ghosts through Ouija boards and automatic writing and seance trances mm. was very, very popular, particularly after World War One. And Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, you know, the most rational detective ever, was a big believer in spiritualism and mm -hmm. chatting with the dead. He publicly endorsed a book that was published in 1924 called Psychic Messages from Oscar Wilde that mm -hmm. contains a whole lot of hilarious bunk. But the scale and ambition, I suppose, of these imposters, it's really interesting to me. They used Conan Doyle's friendship with Wilde as a way of authenticating something that you know, clearly wasn't real. The Ghost also wrote a whole play, pretty much unknown to scholarship. And the play is actually called, Is It a Forgery? Question mark. Unpublished and, you know, sits in an archive. And the third, I suppose, were a bunch of forgers who clustered around an extraordinary guy called, in this instance, his should be called Dorian Hope, since that's the pseudonym he used. Dorian Hope emerges into print in about 1920, when he plagiarizes a book of poems in New York City, then flees to Europe after he's sort of caught. 
tries to get himself involved with Lord Alfred Douglas, Wilde's mm. ex-boyfriend, at that point, a repudiator of his own sexual past and a right-wing fanatic, who later became a Nazi, by the way. Dorian Hope then moved to Paris and started selling wild manuscripts to a couple of very well-placed rare book dealers, one in Dublin and one in London, under the name of the French writer André Gide. All of these groups of characters, what draws them together is a critical mass of fascination for Wilde and his literary legacy, and a pattern of mixing some degree of connection with Wilde with fantasy. Right, with, with something that isn't real. Yeah. What they're trying to do is to inhabit his imagined world, mm-hmm. which is what's brought me to the, I think, you know, one of the book's conclusions is that literary forgery should be reimagined not as crime, but as fan fiction. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a fascinating uh, read because of all of those wild characters that you managed to dig up in the archives. And I, I guess I, I wonder, did you know what you were looking for when you went into the archives? Or was it a kind of happenstance thing that you stumbled across all of these stories that had this common relationship to Wilde through forgery? It was a bit of both, I guess. In some instances, I knew what I was looking for and then was extremely lucky and found even more than I could have possibly imagined. The ghost play, for instance, was a gift of the (laughs) archive. But the thing about working with archives is that they actually teach you how to use them. The more time you spend with this kind of work, the better you get at it. And you start to figure out how to find things. It'd be very difficult for me to try to teach you know, a kind of straightforward archival methodology class or something in English at UBC, just because so much of it is luck and happenstance and just, you know, the connections your mind makes between various things. And and you mentioned in your acknowledgments, the archives that you uh, drew from in your your research. It would be remiss of me not to ask you to say a bit more about the loving and careful acts of archival labor Mm -hmm. in which Wilde's fans and forgers engaged, and maybe just about the importance of archives to literary scholarship more broadly. I think if people are interested in literary materiality, that is the physical stuff that literature is produced from, especially in a pre-digital age, and of course it's changed massively in recent years, that I think matters a great deal to literary study and and Mm. archives preserve that material. The thing about archives is that the material they preserve too is often unique and has physical properties that can only be fully grasped or appreciated in person. We're lucky to have a spectacular collection at UBC Mm -hmm. uh, Library, and I've been fortunate to work with Rare Books in building on that collection. My primary materials aren't here, but a lot of other things have come from this library, and a lot of -of out-of-the-way rare publications that I've needed have been accessible here. So I often say that in my discipline that people often have a kind of default discipline, and, and I'm a historian. I like old stuff in the past and trying to sort of piece it together and enliven it for the future. And that's yeah. why I find archives, finding material in collections like that so fascinating. The thrill of discovery is a very real thing and a very yeah. great thing. I can appreciate the thrill of it simply because it's not something I've, you know, had a lot of opportunity to do. So it seems very mysterious to me as someone Mm -hmm. who hasn't spent a lot of time in archives. I guess I'm curious about some of the methodological implications of historians' approach to literary studies. For example, when you're bringing up 
voices from the past of mm-hmm. these, you know, forgers who maybe were not notable in their own right or under their own name, maybe in their own time. And now you're sort of shining a contemporary spotlight on them. I wonder, are there ethical or disciplinary considerations that you take into account when you are engaging with those voices from the past? That's a fascinating question because I have encountered this and I've been sort of puzzled by other people's ethical difficulties. I have none. These people are dead. Uh, We can't hurt them. This also extends to publishing or publicizing other aspects of their lives, Mm, because I'm dealing with people in many senses that are on the margins of society. Mrs. Chantoon, for instance, went to prison more than once. Dorian Hope, he was a, a bourgeois American Southerner, but he was also queer in a way that I think goes beyond just simply gay. You know, one of his earlier forms of staging personality was as a drag queen. I have material about him as a drag queen in the 19 teens. You know, and people will say, well, is there an ethical problem with Mm. exposing these people's lives and their privacy to view? I I mean, I suppose I appreciate the question on, on one level as a question of tact and a question of decorum. But they're dead. It can't hurt them. And it can help us to understand the past. That's the exciting thing is to realize the continuities in some ways more than the discrepancies or the discontinuities between our lives and the lives of people long gone. Dorian Hope's story after the wild impersonations is also quite, you know, romantic and he will probably be my next project. He becomes a diva-worshipping chronicler of <laughs> recently deceased actresses right. and performers. Oh, he, claimed, wow. he forged Sarah Bernhardt's memoirs and huh. letters and then went on to do the same thing on Isadora Duncan, but under a new name, Sylvester Dorian. So he still keeps the Dorian, which of course is a tag for the picture of Dorian Gray, right? Yeah, yeah. In there. Yeah. But I'm interested too in characters who create different kinds of theatrical personae and masks. Mm, Yeah. And the thing about taking the mask off is that you generally find not so much a kind of vulnerable reality, but simply another mask underneath. Mm. I think it's really interesting. And of course, it's Wilde who theorized that way of understanding personhood and identity a good hundred years before queer and gender theory emerges in a more, I think, academically respectable or respected now way in in the 1980s. It's already kind of inchoate in in Wilde. So in some ways, he is my theoretical guide. And actually what you're saying leads into one of the things I wanted to ask you about next, which was your epigraph, which is from Wilde. And you Mm. quote, his sort of famous statement that lying, the telling of beautiful, untrue things is the proper aim of art, capital A art. And mm-hmm. that, of course, is the the source of your of your title as well. Mm-hmm. The <laughs> core idea in his essay, The Decay of Lying. I yeah. mean, uh, one yeah. of the Wilde's critical essays are still undervalued in terms of the aperçus they have about life and art and truth and lies. Beauty and art were everything to him. But he was a strong believer in the power and the validity of fantasy, right? Uh, Making things up, things that weren't necessarily true. He was sort of anti-Platonic despite his intense classical education. But The Decay of Lying articulates a kind of a theory of art, which, you know, taken in conjunction with some of his other works, posits that forgery is the ultimate kind of artwork. It's not about originality, 
right? This romantic idea of, yeah. you know, to be original um, and, you know, true to yourself. Well, that's Shakespearean, but, but he, he sort of pivots from that to suggest that, no, the, the great art is to make more meritorious use of existing material. And in so doing, enhance the spectacular personality of the artist. So yes, in some ways it is about sort of conceited self-aggrandizement, but Wilde was, you know, never bothered by that. I was also quite lucky in finding a lot of tags like that in Wilde's own work that I then imported into the book and embroidered into its texture. That's uh, right. To try yeah. to give it a bit of artfulness and to anchor it in a deep reading of Wilde's writing. Because of course I couldn't have read this or done the research into the forgers without knowing the whole corpus well already right so it's it's sort of implicit in the book because you you play on the oh yeah titles of his various works in your chapter titles right so each chapter title is sort of a, a tribute to the idea of forgery and creativity being the same thing right to forge of course <laughs> means both to make and to fake. Forgery is creativity, is yeah. art. It's one of the little playful things that I like to do. I'll take a famous title and then work it into the chapter title. So there's one chapter about the sort of posthumous guardians of Wilde's literary reputation that's called The Importance of Being Authentic. For these people, textual authenticity was really crucial. The chapter on Mrs. Chantoon called The Devoted Fraud, which is a play on the devoted friend things that are sort of in-jokes for the wild fans among the readers of the book. Yeah, and they often kind of make a, a sort of tongue-in-cheek comment, you know, the idea of the importance of being authentic. I think it works so well because it plays against the irony and the importance of being earnest, which is really about the kind of friction between this concept of faking it and being authentic. And being so, authentic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that, con- that irony is always there. For me, at least, there is no sort of mode that's, more important than irony. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> irony really matters. Especially in a pandemic. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's, just, it's crucial for survival, but just as a way of making sense of everything that goes on, one needs a healthy sense of irony to get through the day and to get through the day with a chuckle. Your introduction, which I'll just say, in, you know, is called The Truth of Fakes, a play mm. on Wilde's essay, The Truth of Masks. Your introduction opens with, executed on a scrap of Sotheby's auction catalog, a pencil sketch of a standing male figure in Renaissance dress, measuring about one inch by two inches, is as close in material terms to the true portrait of Mr. W.H. that we may ever get. But it strikes me that you could have started the book in any number of different ways. Why did you settle on this illustration of an illustration, which is, as we learn, actually yeah. a forgery of a forgery? <laughs> I made that decision in revising. I did move, you know, move material, move blocks of text and, and parts of the argument around. You know, I wanted it to grab a reader and to be interesting. Since the argument did hang on and was anchored by particular artifacts, I had this vestige that was a representation of a forged painting in a story by Wilde, which actually articulates the theory of forgery that is uncannily replicated in real life except without Shakespeare at its center, which is how it works in the wild story in the portrait. Right. In real life, it was with Wilde was the author yeah. that they were obsessed <laughs> with. The portrait of Mr. W.H. is this sort of homosocial literary theory game among these three men who try to figure out 
you know, who was the dedicatee of Shakespeare's sonnets? They go with that, you know, the dedicatee to Mr. W. And nobody ever knows who Mr. W.H. really is. There's never been any consensus. Yeah. In the story itself, one of these gentlemen has a forgery contrived to prove the theory, which is only the beginning of the cascade of irony. Um, yeah. This is one of Wilde's <laughs> most difficult and convoluted texts, actually. Yeah. In real life, one of Wilde's own friends actually painted that real fake portrait and gave it to him as a present, which then disappeared from his house after it was ransacked in the trials. So his house was actually invaded. Various kinds of both people who hated him and were disgusted and loathed him, and also, you know, uh, opportunists grabbed stuff. They looted it. And that picture has disappeared. And many years later, the artist who painted the picture in real life was asked by one of devotees to sort of recreate it. He did this tiny little sketch. And the Sotheby's auction catalog is apropos because so much of Wilde's material remains um, passed through that auction house. It was a way of introducing the story in all of its convolutions and folds. <laughs> you know, it's recursive. It does sort of fold in on itself in a number of Yeah, it's dizzying. Ways. But I thought it would be fun to start it with an image and to start it with, you know, something that was that had a kind of material reality, simply because, you know, the fake, real, real fake stuff can get a bit dizzying and disorienting at times. Yeah, and it speaks very eloquently to Wilde's assertion that life imitates art more than the other way around. Indeed, Indeed. and that is also from The Decay of Lying. But no, that was really fun to find that. As many of the the things that I discovered, that um, vestige. I'm still on the hunt, as are others, for the the lost portrait. Do you Um, have any promising leads? But no leads. We lose track of it in about 1910 or so. There, there are going to be some treasures that are never, never found, unfortunately. But that sort of adds to the mystique and the magic, doesn't it? That there's yeah, always perhaps I mean, some other stuff that can still come up. For many, he was a saint. His tomb in Paris is a site of pilgrimage. And he has become the saint figure for sexual minorities. People who are misunderstood or, or cast out for various reasons, who are you know, susceptible to things that are very beautiful. Yeah, like he was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's definitely how I how I came to him was through that sort of identification, I guess. Me too. Me yeah, too. Yeah. Yep. So I'd like to ask you about method in yeah. a, in a in a way. I think in the sciences and social sciences, I find that method sections are really highly explicit, and in the humanities. You know, there's maybe a greater variety. Some sometimes it's explicit, but often it's implicit only. I think maybe with respect to English in particular, and this is just me hazarding an, an opinion as someone who studied English. I, I wonder if this is largely due to a kind of prevailing taste for literary prose or you know stylish prose even, which might find the overt description of methods distasteful, yet in and of itself, it's a kind of methodological preoccupation. The meritorious method is about concealing that architecture, not making it explicit. I think that could one be one of the reasons why people in other disciplines tend to mistrust us in <laughs> the literary study. Right? Yeah, they yeah. Tend, to, tend to go, oh, them, the wordsmiths. Although our job and what we do is scholarly, we have a more creative take on it, perhaps, or the, the way that we execute the scholarship. I've always thought that polished prose is important. You know, in terms of method, it ought to be, you know, obvious eventually. Um, it doesn't have to be 
stated, you know, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to say that, and then it's going to prove this. And then 200 pages later, you get there and you go, aha, <laughs> um, it has been proven. You describe your own project as jointly engaging book history and theater studies, which allows you to explore how literary forgery can also come into view as a form of performance art. I wonder if another way of thinking about that is that this is a kind of theoretical or philosophical side of your project as opposed to the maybe hands-on work of being in the archives. Absolutely. I think that coming from some training in both of those, in both book history methodology and in theater studies, was very helpful to what this book ended up being about because performance and authorship are so deeply linked in Wilde's own work, but also in the afterlife. Readers of the book might get exhausted by the theater metaphors that keep proliferating, but I I just can't help it because it, it does seem very appropriate that here is a dramatist who theorized about a great deal. And again, in his, his non-fictional prose, about performance as one of the great forms of creativity. And, you know, to go back to Mr. W.H. for a second, in Mr. W.H., of course, the, the characters in the story speculate that the dedicatee was, of course, of the poems, was an actor who played all the, you know, because it was a single-sex theater world, who played mm. all the great female parts. So it's charged with theater and homoeroticism at the same time. <laughs> the, the idea that performance is central to authorship, I think, is one of, or at least to inhabiting the territory of authorship, perhaps, is a more precise way of putting it, is central to the book's argument. That's great. Yeah. I wonder, to change gears a little bit, you argue that the wild sh- short story is the this is the portrait of wh is a kind of article of shakespearean fandom and then that this provides a template or a pattern for the later fandom performed if you like by the forgers even by wilds just sort of ardent readers and so i wonder if you could just say more about this idea of fan fiction and particularly perhaps in relationship to the queer dimension of Wilde's work and his reception and kind of enshrining as a as a saint of the queer. <laughs> oh, there's a lot there's a lot there. Uh, yeah, a lot there. Yeah. Um, I actually don't know I'll admit. I don't know a lot about fan fiction. I've <laughs> read very little of it and it it is something however that I've learned does predate online literary communities yeah, that we yeah. tend to associate it with now there is lost sherlock holmes fan fiction from the 1890s from that period spoiler alert here after conan doyle first kills off sherlock holmes <laughs> i think it's about the enthusiasm of audiences right it's about audience enthusiasm for an author but also for the kind of imaginative space that they conjure and then attribute to that author. Now, sometimes some writers can encourage this, you know, when they write series, for instance, or linked books, sometimes mm-hmm. it can be posthumously applied. In contemporary cases of fan fiction, it's about trying to get into that space, trying to write yourself into a kind of intimate connection with the creator of the fantasy world that gives you so much pleasure. You know, I speculate that this is one of the motivating factors in some of the wild forgers, because they had to be animated by that love, by that level of obsession, or forgeries couldn't have been so spot on in some ways. I mean, right. they bring a great deal of knowledge and a great deal of research, yeah. which is itself sometimes archival yeah, um, yeah. to their performances and their productions. Right? So they've actually done a lot of work in order to create beautiful untrue things, in order to create fakes. Wilde's own situation is, you know, of course, probably unique because of 
you know, it's not an exaggeration, I think, to say that, you know, that his trial in spring of 1895 was the greatest scandals of the 19th century. And it was only after that trial that several of, you know, our cultures or Western culture more generally, tropes and stereotypes about gay men really kind of came together. And so Wilde was definitional in a number of ways. But he was also, of course, sorely punished for this, and then wrote some searing work about his time in prison. You know, The Ballad of Reading Jail, the poem that he published after he came out of prison, of course, is very different from much of his other work, yeah. and was the best-selling thing he'd ever written. And it was originally published <laughs> under his prison number, although mm-hmm. the secret of its authorship was open. And after he died, of course, his prison memoir, De Profundis, came out in very abridged form, because there mm-hmm. were some material in there that would have been very damaging to many people then alive. Yeah. <laughs> also, I think, built on a kind of mythology of wild legend rather than mythology, because I think a lot of people think mythology, take it as meaning something that is, you know, false. And that's a bad thing. I don't know why Mm. that has to be a bad thing, but for many people it is. And I think a lot of people who identify with Wilde have identified with his story. His story itself is also very dramatic and has a tragic arc to it. He bursts onto the scene and is enormously successful, does all sorts of things and lives this very glamorous life, is wealthy and spends all sorts of money and lives really, really well. And then it all comes crashing down, whether through, you know, a so-called character flaw of his own or through the machinations of others. It's up to other people to decide what they want to believe, but that's still what happened. You know, there's a kind of a kind of shape, I think, a narrative shape to that biography that continues to inspire his fans. And so one of the things the forgers do, they mix fact and fiction. They know a lot of information about his life and, and people he associated with and use that information, which is sometimes exaggerated or embroidered, to authenticate faked documents. So you'll see, for instance, a lot of personal letters that are revealing about Wilde and, you know, various young men that he may or may not have had affairs with in ways that Wilde would not have been. What they do do is they speak to what people might want to believe. The forgeries bring into existence things that wouldn't otherwise have existed, but that somebody wishes did exist. That, I think, also is a kind of almost admirable creative act because it's in such defiance of what Wilde would call the trammeling ordinariness of everyday life. Right. And and not so different from what he did with, no. with Shakespeare. Yeah. He made Shakespeare into something that Shakespeare probably wasn't, but he wanted yeah. Shakespeare to be that. So he yeah. did it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how expressing one's desire that way can open a new kind of interpretive way of looking at someone like Shakespeare or like Wilde, you know, a new framework for understanding them, which maybe doesn't have sort of historical accuracy, but nevertheless allows you to get in on on some view, some vantage of their work. Things can be imaginatively true without being historically accurate, yes. At conferences and such, when this book was still being worked on, other scholars who who are wild specialists who say things like, oh yes, forgeries, that stuff is so sad, or they're very offended by it, which is another reaction that I always find sort of puzzling. They're they're offended on his behalf. And it, right. and it comes down to, I think, a sense of violated literary property. Right. So the question of literary property and copyright, you know, which yeah. is you know, always in something that we deal with as in the university context with students yeah. all the time, is very much in play here. Yeah, I mean, Wilde was also a plagiarist, not only of others' work, but even of his own. Mm-hmm. He, he would like lines so much that he'd recycle them and think nothing of it. 
does speak to the fact that we learn by reading often in terms of how to write something. We can be informed by the literary encounters that we've had in our own reading. And Wilde did this too. He wrote this ghastly play in his early in his career <laughs> called The Duchess of Padua. Not many people have ever heard about it. I actually published on it, but I think I'm like one of the only people ever. Right. Um, it's really bad, but it's it's a pastiche of Shakespeare and Renaissance tragedy. It's called, you know, a drama of the 16th century, as if it was written in the 16th century. And it represents Wilde trying to, you know, be Shakespeare in a way. Mm. But this Shakespeare is, very, well, I'll have to leave it to the listeners to read the play. It's a bit of a chore. <laughs> and the plot convolutions are quite something. But it is, you know, it's an Italian revenge drama. It's interesting to think about juvenilia that mm. doesn't meet the level of, of what we hold Wilde up to. Wilde is one of those writers that people say, oh, yes, he's a great genius. But actually, he wrote a lot of stuff that's terrible. And some of his early apprenticeship kind of work is not as good because he hadn't really, what we would now say, found his own voice. But his voice, in a sense, is a kind of compendium of other voices. He just gets much better at it with practice. Yeah. His early book of poetry, most of the poems are terrible. The echoes of a lot of Victorian poets and Shakespeare and Keats are very, very audible in yeah. them. Yeah. But the poems themselves were less important, I think, than the conjuring of the writing self as a capital P poet. That was the artwork that really mattered. And the production of a beautiful book to encase those yes, poems yeah, was also yeah. really important to him. The physical attributes of his work really mattered a lot to him too. He was very fussy and finicky about how the book looked. A lot of his books have just the cover designs. The books themselves, a physical book, is meant to be a work of art, yeah, not, not yeah. just the words on the page. Your writing is very accessible. And um, it's interesting to note that it's very almost jargon-free, which isn't always the case when it comes to scholarship, even literary scholarship. Your sentences are punctuated with really kind of clever quips, which are sort of, I think, in the in the spirit of Oscar Wilde. And you refer to yourself as playing detective, which I guess is more of an allusion to Doyle than a kind of childish sense with these materials. And all of that comes through in your prose. How did you develop this voice that can be taken seriously as scholarship, but yeah. which is also really accessible? I mean, I love beautiful writing. Yeah. I like prose. You know, Walter Pater, Wilde's mentor, said to him, oh, Oscar, why do you write poetry? You should write prose. Prose is so much more difficult. It's obviously a joke. I really find jargon-heavy prose on the border of painful often. Mm. I don't understand why people feel the need to make their ideas difficult to understand. I don't know where it comes from. I would be tempted to psychologize, in fact, <laughs> say that it comes from either a sense of aggression, in as in, you know, outsiders should be kept out. And mm. if you can't understand this, you're an outsider, mm. which I want no part of. Yeah. or a kind of imposter syndrome, a kind of feeling of inadequacy that writing, and I see this in students and graduate students in particular, actually, that, that right. scholarly writing has to be very ponderous and full of jargony words that are freighted with, you know, a word itself is basically a drop-down menu of footnotes. You know, I don't mean to throw too much shade here, but my peers do too, and, and, or academics do all the time. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not necessary. And it's, it's ugly. And why should writing be ugly? I don't really want to do that. And I've been lucky enough to have been able to have avoided it. I've been damned with faint praise by many people. But, you know, you sort of slalom around those little bumps. I want the reader to experience 
the sort of little bits of serendipitous joy that language can produce, even if they're reading a, a critical book, little bits of delight, a turn of phrase or a play on words or a pun or something like that. You know, if you can do that, why wouldn't you? I think a lot of academic writing does suffer from the critique of being dry, but not all mm. of it is. Lots of academic writing is, is stunning in terms of its beauty. I suffer from the same aestheticism syndrome that Oscar Wilde did. Right. <laughs> I also did something else. I'll make a confession that I probably shouldn't if my publisher <laughs> ever hears this, but there's actually a forgery in the book. Will you give us any hints or we have to play detective There's, ourselves? No, you have to play detective. Well, it's, I've got a reference and a footnote, which is entirely fictional. Oh, that's fantastic. I thought, what the hell? Let's just put this in here. And I and it got away with it. It's in print now. So I don't know if it'll cause any great mischief or any trouble. I don't think so. Probably not. No. Probably not. But it's worth the risk. Some poor grad student in, in a few years we'll, is going to... We'll try to follow up on something and find... Yeah. There's no there there. There's no there there. And they'll realize when they look at the thing, the footnote, more closely that they should have smelled a rat earlier. <laughs> well, I'm going straight to the footnotes once this interview is over. Okay. I'm going <laughs> to see if I can find it. Just, it was one little extra little thing that I just thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool to do this? So I, I put that in there too. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Greg. I've oh, really enjoyed it. Interrobang, a writing podcast, is an open access educational resource created by the Center for Writing and Scholarly Communication at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. Pre-production was completed by Liam Monahan and Bo Lehman. Audio engineering was completed by Arya Empicaris. Visit our website, writing.library.ubc.ca to learn more about the services and resources through which we support writing at UBC.